welcome everyone to a very special show. We don't quite have a name for it. Pain flows, pain points and capital flows. We're working on the name, but it's going to be a show with Daniel Wan and myself, Emil Kalinowski. We're going to be talking to very interesting people, experts in their field about a particular market and what that market might be saying about the broader whole of the system, about the global economy, about currencies, commodities. Daniel, how have I done so far in explaining sort of the outline of each particular show? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, everything is interrelated, everything's interdependent. And so, you know, trying to gain deeper insight into certain markets, platinum in this case, I think will be quite fascinating just to sort of see where we're at with things and, and also have the ability to talk to an expert and someone with a lot greater depth of insight into the underlying realities of what's going on. And then triangulating that back with some of the different sort of perspectives that we also have, just trying to make sense of things and explore, explore forward-looking scenarios and what might be in the price, not in the price, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, th I think it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. And our inaugural guest is Vilma Swartz, the director of Precious Group Metals for Metals Focus. Vilma, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then we'll jump right into platinum? Excellent. Well, thank you very much for um, having me both, uh, Emil and Daniel. I'm very excited to tell you a little bit more about um, what has been a passion for me for most probably the last 14 years of my life. So as you can hear from the accent, I'm South African and there's a particular um, uh, correlation there because most of, uh, of the world's platinum actually comes from South Africa. Uh, I come from the mining industry. I worked for the third largest platinum mine in the world. And I looked after the metal flow, so metal flowing into the business, being processed, and also the, the metal, so physical metal flows out of the business placed into the market. So I have um, an intimate interest in both the supply side, the mining side, and also the secondary side of, of material um, production. And then uh, quite an interest in the demand side. I served on the Berea board. It's a Japanese company that produces product um, with using platinum group metals. And I also served on the uh, Platinum Jewelry Development Association board, as well as the World Platinum Investment Council. Fantastic. Very impressive. We've got the right person. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk to Vilma about the ABCs and one, two, threes, just so that we are on a level playing field, at least somewhere, a foundation to start about where does the platinum come from? Where is it refined? Who uses it? Which countries? And then from there, after that sort of introductory uh, monologue, soliloquy, we'll go to Daniel. And Daniel, of course, is the Chief Investment Officer of Prerequisite Capital. And if you ever seen, have ever seen Daniel speak on Real Vision or any of his other number of appearances around on the internet and podcasts, you know that he has a very unique proprietary view into capital flows, which is, I would think, the elemental, fundamental mover of prices and markets, capital flows. So we'll be looking at some of the charts that Daniel has, some of the ideas, some of the questions that he has. And Daniel, of course, you, you picked out this market because you found something interesting. We have all manner of markets that we could be looking at, but we picked out platinum because you thought there was something interesting 
in that market. But let me throw it to Vilma first. You said it's South Africa, but uh, tell us, where does platinum come from? Is it mostly South Africa, generally South Africa? Where else? Um, yes, definitely. So, so I, I think what is important when we talk about platinum is to understand that uh, when you introduced me, you said platinum group metals, and that is a, an important element to to remember. Um, predominantly, platinum does come from South Africa, but it is mined as part of a basket, a basket of um, six metals. And most recently, what we have seen is actually that platinum for the miners actually only contributes about 19% to, to their revenue. There is palladium and rhodium that has actually contributed quite significantly to the incredible basket prices. But I run ahead of myself. So let's start with platinum group metals and where it comes from. So resources and reserves um, of platinum far less than what you would see in the gold market. So um, compared to gold, there's about only one to five, you know, so for every five tons of gold, there's only one ton of, of platinum um, in the world. 70, as I said, 72% of platinum is mined in South Africa. Um, so 72% of, of supply. There is um, then metal that comes from Russia, around about 10 to 12% of platinum is mined as a bi-metal. In South Africa, the mining is for platinum group metals. So you have platinum or platinum group metal mines in South Africa. In the, the likes of uh, Russia, this is a byproduct. And so the, the focus there is mining nickel, nickel coppers, and the byproduct is platinum, palladium. More palladium from Russia than, than platinum. Um, also North America and, and Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe has incredibly um, big resources of platinum, but at the moment it only contributes about 8%. Then we have North America. So with the likes of uh, Stillwater, and of course, in Canada, we have um, Impala Platinum, where there's also a certain percentage. Very little platinum group metals come from other regions as mined material. Over the years, because so much of the platinum goes onto automotive catalysis, so the dominant demand segment for platinum is the automotive sector. So one uses platinum to convert monoxide to dioxide, so taking it from a, a poisonous gas to a greenhouse gas. But of course, that is the predominant use of platinum. And because of the fact that it started being used in the 1970s already, we are now seeing vehicles come to end of life, that those vehicles are, are recycled or the catalyst spent catalysts are recycled. And so we are seeing an, a growing percentage of secondary material coming to the market. So geographically, platinum mine supply is very concentrated. About 4.2 million ounces come from South Africa, and there's about 6 million, so 6.2 million ounces mined um, on an annual basis. From a recycling perspective, so from a secondary supply perspective, that is a lot more diverse because that is associated with where the vehicle is actually um, coming to end of life. Um, the other large demand component for platinum is jewellery. And the largest market for jewellery is China. 
So if we just think about the, the quantum here, around about just short of 2 million ounces of platinum is consumed in the jewelry market. 50% of that is consumed in the Chinese market. And then if we look at how the Chinese market operates, you would buy a piece of platinum and then you would trade it up potentially or if you want to change it out. So there's a, a fairly large jewelry recycling um, component. Still kind of small in comparison. So we have about 1.5 million ounces of recycling, um, of platinum recycling in the AutoCAT space, the AutoCatalyst space. And you have about 400 odd thousand ounces of uh, platinum that comes from the jewelry sector as recycling. So that is a growing component. So if we think about, you know, in the year 2010, that was about, it contributed about 26% of supply came from, from, from the secondary market. And that we see growing going forward to making up about 30, 35% if we look at towards the end of this decade. That takes care really of supply side of the ABCs of platinum um, and, and a little bit of the demand side. But platinum has an incredibly diverse um, application compared to some of the other metals. So it's sister metals, palladium and rhodium, 80 to 90% of that is consumed in the automotive market. But yes. Can I jump in very quickly before we move on to demand? Because you're going to move on to demand. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> Perfect. Let me ask a few questions about supply. Let me just get in there because... In other areas like, uh, oh gosh, I'm thinking, what am I thinking of? Uh, cobalt, for example. A lot of the mine supply also is coming from Africa, the DRC. And that's one choke point and sounds similar to South Africa, where the lion's share is coming from one country. But then there's a second choke point in that that cobalt ore is then shipped to China and refined there. Is there anything at all similar in the platinum market? You mentioned South Africa. Tell me if I've got these numbers right. Three quarters of mine supply. Uh, Russia, a tenth of mine supply, roughly. And then we've got Zimbabwe around 8%. Are there then further choke points in refining, especially, I suppose, and then I suppose that wouldn't be the case when it comes to the recycling of the cars, but maybe in the jewelry, which mostly is in China. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the refining side. Is there any, are there any choke points there? Oh, I, I think over time there definitely is. But uh, so if we just think about South Africa, South Africa, um, there are three um, integrated, what we call integrated um, miners there. That means that they go from, hoisting uh, the ore straight through to actually producing a final product. And the other mines in South Africa would make a concentrate and that typically would, that concentrate would be told or uh, processed by these three integrated entities. Some of that concentrate could also potentially move to refiners elsewhere, uh, so, so offshore. On the recycling side, and we know that in 2019, we did have a choke point. So there was a lot more material that was coming through and the refining capacity wasn't there. But, but that would be situational. That would mean because, because if we just think about the process of, of mining, so platinum uh, production, you, you have the concentrate, the concentrate goes to a base metals refinery. You spoke about cobalt there. So there's not a lot of cobalt. There's some cobalt in the deposit, um, but certainly there's nickel and copper. 
copper. So the process for platinum production is that um, you go, it goes to a, a base metals refinery to extract the nickel and the coppers, and then it goes to uh, your precious metals refinery where it then is taken to a final product. Before it goes to the base metal refinery, there's smelting that happens, and that is frequently a bottleneck. I mean, I think that's really where we see sometimes challenges. Is the smelting and or refining capacity concentrated in one country, like with the, like as is the case with cobalt refining and for battery metals, which is pre- predominantly in China? Do we have anything like that in platinum or no? Is it widely dispersed? For mine supply, for concentrate, it certainly is concentrated in South Africa. Um, but but each jurisdiction, each geography would have a certain amount of smelting capacity, a certain amount of refining capacity. So typically in North America, you have, you know, still water would have its own smelting capacity and then refining um, as well. You know, there is sufficient refining capacity. It happens that in North America, the model there is is predominantly to do own smelting and then to have a refiner that can do both primary and secondary material, refine that to a final product. In Europe, you also have refineries that are capable of taking in mine concentrate feed, but and also secondary um, concentrate. But in general, uh, smelting is generally the bottleneck when it comes to, to, um, to material supply. Okay, so about three quarters of supply comes from mines. But that's going to be reducing by the end of the decade. We're looking at maybe a third or more coming from secondary sources, which is primarily from cars, which are distributed all around the world very well. We, because of when we're recording this, 2022, of course, what's in the news is the war between Russia and the Ukraine. And I know that recently in the news, Palladium showed up in the news because if I am correct, you can tell us a super, super majority of palladium comes from Russia. And so I believe it was the London Platinum Palladium Association said, we don't like your Russian palladium anymore and we're not going to be accepting it. Tell me if I've got that story generally correct. But the point, the reason I'm asking is if 10 to 12 percent of mine supply comes from Russia, Is there any talk right now about accepting platinum from Russia? Well, both platinum and palladium will um, have been removed from the good delivery list. But we need to think about what that really essentially means. The London Platinum Palladium um, Association has, um, has was formed in order to allow or facilitate banks and consumers to have a a trust mechanism. So you understand that the material that you are buying is good delivery status. So how it is mined, how it is sourced, and what the purity levels are um, is of a certain standard. And so what has happened is that there are two refineries, Russian refineries, that have been removed from the good delivery list. Metal up until the 8th of April will be accepted as good delivery standard and metal beyond that will no longer be accepted. So there is a component of that where where banks or the futures market and Daniel might most probably um, give a little bit more insight of that. But but you 
place physical metal into warehouses, that metal needs to be of a certain standard. It needs to have that accreditation. If it doesn't have that accreditation, then it can't move into that. So that could create some form of access liquidity squeeze on physical metal um, per se. But the refiners can continue. So these Russian refiners can continue to produce the metal, can continue to place it with consumers who are willing to purchase the metal. None of these companies are particularly on the sanctions list, so they have the ability to continue to, to trade. It would depend on, you know, I think the country position and the company's position within the country and their own internal policies as to whether they would continue to buy or not buy. But will that reduce the amount of metal potentially available? I think on the physical, you know, physical market within the financial markets, potentially, but as a top line supply and demand, supply and demand, no. Daniel, that's it for me when it comes to supply. Did you have any questions? Otherwise, we'll move on to demand. Not necessarily. I mean, uh, like two of the biggest aspects from the outside looking in naively, obviously the jurisdictional risk and the likely course of events, particularly in South Africa, have always intrigued me, especially you know, over the better part of the last 10 years, watching things evolve. A lot of the lessons of history that I think I've learned have continued to just point to more and more instability and issues and lack of reliability of basically contracts. Um, so the time horizon of confidence has been collapsing for, for quite a while. Trust mechanisms, expropriation risk is just gradually sort of escalating in the background, either through taxation or like all sorts of different ways of interrupting activity. Obviously, you would understand this or, or a lot of these dynamics a lot more than I ever will, given your backgrounds. Is there anything in particular in terms of so, so one of the things we tend to find is that insight into the present and how we've got up to here tends to give rise a little bit to a degree of foresight. Not always, but sometimes. And so from a jurisdictional sort of progression in, in some of these sorts of things, do you have any particular sort of forward-looking views or scenarios or thoughts or, or insights that, that you find are interesting um, that could or, or may not actually, you know, impact the supply situation moving forward or not sure? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, th I think you're 100% right. So the, this uh, geographic concentration of platinum does make it a metal that people are, or the guys in white coats make hesitant to, to necessarily use. So there is a, there's always a, a wish or, a, or an aspiration to find to use less of it or not to use it at all. The reality is that these metals are, you know, incredible in terms of their characteristics. One would always need the metal. But if we look at South Africa first in terms of geographic and social political risk, it, it, that is true. You're 100% right. There's another dynamic there and that is, you know, just power supply. We talk about the smelters, you know, we, we all know that this is energy intensive um, uh, mechanisms. And so the miners are incredibly vulnerable to the utilities provider and the stability of the utilities provider. And we've heard uh, most probably you've heard about load shedding and that is really a key challenge. And it does hamper 
production in the near term. The other component really is um, industrial action. Uh, you know, we did see in 2014 the, that, you know, mines were shut for six months. And so I believe that there is a lot of work and effort that is going into that relationship with, um, with the unions. But, you know, just in terms of the ge sociopolitical geographic makeup of South Africa, the mining industry is vulnerable to uh, potential industri uh, industrial action. Now, you know, that is a bit of a three-year cycle. So we tend to see that negotiations happen in three-year cycles. And so imminently, there is negotiations um, and, and you would have seen some news flows around the negotiations around wage increases. And so typically you can see that going forward, that that will continue to be a pinch point for, for platinum and platinum supply from South Africa. In addition to that, I think that, you know, the, 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 the mining of reserves are becoming deeper. We are seeing some depletion happening on the Western limb. So the cost of mining is increasing and the inflationary cost. And so if we look long term, you know, the growth prospects in South Africa is a challenge in terms of mine supply. So while we are seeing quite a, a healthy growth, uh, we, we're expecting healthy growth in secondary supply. I think long term, we're seeing about 1-2% growth prospects in primary mine supply. Vilma, it just occurred to me to ask you about stockpiles. Because in some of these smaller metal markets, unknown, unreported stockpiles of the metal can have an outsized influence. Gold famously has, gosh, if I'm, I'm going off memory, but I think... $8 trillion worth of above ground stock and all the new supply that comes on each year is only one to 2% of the above ground stock. Silver, if I'm go again going off memories about 3 billion troy ounces, two thirds of which are unreported and estimated. So there's this tremendous pool that can come in at any time at the right price, I suppose. What about with platinum? Are there perhaps strategic stockpiles by the government, by Russia, South Africa? Are there strategic stockpiles? Maybe producers or commodity traders? Are they, is it material? Is it publicly known relative to the size of the market? Is this something that we should consider? Or is the real stockpile all the cars that are being driven around? That's the real stockpile. Well, it's all of the above in a way. And I guess, you know, there's no clear definitive answer if um, uh, to say I know exactly what those stockpiles are. But we do estimate the stockpiles. So we do, we have an estimation of what above ground stock is. And so for platinum, we see that by the end of 2021, there was about 10.5 million ounces worth of metal in above ground stock. That is, that represents about 17 months worth of demand. So essentially, if you think about it, if no production happens, if no secondary supplies um, happens, just short of a, a year and a half, you could technically have metal that you can draw from on above ground. So beyond that, if you don't have the supply, you would have a challenge. Now, that number in itself is potentially problematic because, you know, not all metal will come to market. For platinum, I think that there is comfort and there's also comfort for, you know, in terms of, of knowing that that's the, the kind of above ground stock number will incentivize or, or, or drive 
a consumer to continue to use and develop product associated with that. So it's not a necessarily a negative. Sometimes it's a negative on the price, and Daniel can most probably talk a little bit more about that in terms of, of the investment appetite um, around that if you know that there is stock. But if we just look at the ETF holdings, you know, they actually peaked last year at 4 million ounces. Um, and essentially, that metal at some point would come back to market. So that is, in a way, uh, metal that is is accessible and, and these 4 million ounces. Producers, um, OEM, so uh, automotive companies, would typically hold 60 to 90 days worth of, um, of, of metal in inventory. Um, and similarly, so if we just look at, and I know we're not on demand yet, but if we look at some of the other applications like glass and chemical, typically there would also be metal available um, and held in stock there. And again, we're looking at about two, three months worth of, of stock. Well, let's get to demand then. Uh, we've been talking about supply long enough. Tell us a little bit about demand. You told us it has something to do with primarily vehicles, auto catalysts, jewelry, and you just mentioned glass. Tell us, give us the uh, ABC123 about platinum demand. So when we talk about um, auto catalysts as being the, the largest demand component, certainly the word, the, the operative word is catalyst because it is also used in other industries as a catalyst. So it is used in chemicals, uh, so uh, in, in making plastics, vinyl acetate monomers, all of those processes would use platinum as a catalyst. And so you have a certain amount of installed capacity, and we've seen quite a significant expansion, especially in terms of, of the manufacturing of plastics in China. It's also used as a catalyst in the, in the pharmaceutical industry, and it is used as a catalyst in the petroleum industry. Uh, those are somewhat smaller um, components, so you're looking at about um, you know, 10%, 5% of total demand that these components make up the chemical side, the petroleum side. Glass, in glass, it's not used as a catalyst. In glass, it is part of the equipment. Because of its um, incredibly high temperature resistance to high temperatures, it is an ideal metal to use in glass. It's used in combination with rhodium, typically, in the equipment um, in order to make um, fiberglass and glass. So again, last year we saw incredible expansion and in a way that was a delay from 2020 because of COVID, the expansion didn't happen. So we saw quite a bit of metal. We saw 715,000 ounces consumed in 2021 in the glass industry, new glass application. So if we just think about it again, there's a lot of glass installed, platinum installed in the glass industry. And the metal that we talk about as demand is only top-up metal. The other industrial, and this is a growing element, and this is possibly where we see a lot of optimism, is the hydrogen economy. And we classify that within other industrial um, components. So the use of platinum in electrolysis, so making of hydrogen, there are different technologies um, that, that you can use to make uh, hydrogen from uh, in electrolysis, but there is called proton exchange membrane technology that uses platinum. And looking at energy security and looking at the importance of net zero, we are seeing that, that there's a lot of potential for, um, for platinum consumption in the hydrogen economy in the production side. 
then also in the consumption side on fuel cells. So looking at potentially shifting to net zero NEV vehicles, so, so vehicles that have a, a, a net zero zero footprint. So we're seeing some move away from industrial uh, combustion engines through zero emission vehicles. That's the word I was looking for, zero emission vehicles. And platinum, so we know we talk, you spoke about cobalt and the importance in the battery electric space, but Platinum plays a role in the fuel cell vehicle, which is also a zero um, emissions vehicle. There are many smaller other applications like medical, so, um, you know, so in pacemakers, in stents, and also in cancer treatment medication, there's also platinum or platinum used um, in those. So overall, there's a really diverse consumption. I would say, as I say, about 60% of it goes into catalysis. Then we've got a further 20, 20% goes into jewelry. And then you've got the other components making up the rest of the 20%. You know what we didn't mention, what you didn't mention, investment. Precious metals, whenever anyone talks about precious metals, they think of adornment, jewelry, but of course, also as an investment wealth preservation. That's the case with gold, silver. You didn't mention it at all with platinum. I'm guessing that means there's very little platinum bar holding or platinum coin collecting. Is that the case? No, no, not at all. Um, I think um, it's so yes, there is um, quite a bit of platinum bar and coin holding. And in fact, last year um, was quite substantial. Um, and the year before that, even more so. So, so typically, you know, the, the behavior in the, in the coin and bar market retail. So we talk about it as retail investment. Because, of course, there is also the ETFs where there is a physical underpin to that, which we don't include in our demand specifically, but acknowledge as uh, as an important component in terms of platinum. But um, so we saw quite a significant increase in platinum retail investment bars and coins in 2020, behaving similar to gold. So we typically see that when there is an increase and a shift towards safe haven holdings, then platinum would have would benefit from that. So we saw just short of 580,000 ounces go into uh, retail investment bars and coins in 2020, coming off slightly in 2021 um, to about 330,000 ounces. But that is still substantial, you know, um, if we just look at on average, you know, that we have seen that be about 200, 200, 300,000 ounces of demand. What proportion of the pie chart of the total demand, annual total demand, would investment be? If we've got 60% auto catalyst, 20% jewelry, and the 20 remaining percent is other petroleum, chemical, glass, where does investment fit in? As far as physical metal is concerned, um, it is a, a quite a small proportion. So if you look at total demand, it is um, 7.3 million ounces. Uh, and if we look at plat, uh, so 332,000 ounces, that makes about 4%. Perfect. Okay, good. Uh, Daniel, if you have any questions, jump in. If not, I've got a question about uh, the auto catalysts and the sister metal, or the, no, it's definitely the sister metal, palladium, named after Athena, Pallas Athena. Now, I know that there has been, if I remember correctly, platinum is primarily used as auto catalysts in. I don't even want to say primarily, but there's a heavy component used in diesel-powered engines, whereas the gasoline petrol is more palladium 
based auto catalysts. And in recent years, I don't know, let's say last decade, it, there was uh, growth in the palladium demand from this from this segment. But then we had the scandal, the Volkswagen scandal in Europe. And Europe said it turned out, well, this diesel-based powered engine is not as green as before. And so if I remember correctly, there was much less platinum demand going forward. But there's a price point at which point the relationship between palladium and platinum is so out of balance that the original equipment manufacturers say, we can't afford using palladium. It's through the roof. Why don't we re-engineer the autocatalyst, use platinum? And I believe something like this happened in 2000, 2001, especially right now with all the, the price spikes with on palladium because of the Russian embargo. What are we seeing right now from the original equipment manufacturers, the vehicle industry? Are we anywhere near that sort of price point? Are we already transitioning to more platinum instead of palladium demand? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is exactly right. I, uh, so, so essentially, you've kind of really captured it incredibly well around, you know, the fact that we um, that diesel diesel engines use a lot more platinum, and um, and gasoline vehicles use a lot more palladium. But with this increasing palladium prices, uh, you know, and and also just simply that palladium was in st structural deficit. Um, so in our data series, it's been in structural deficit for the last 10 years. And so fundamentally, there is a challenge uh, around using too much palladium. And th this is the reason why we had seen the prices go to where it did go. So we know that in 2016, there was an, uh, in the news flows an announcement about the efforts to look at substituting platinum palladium for platinum. So replacing some of the palladium with platinum. And of course, it's not always as transparent. There are a couple of things. So, so we have different views around the substitution, uh, the extent of substitution. Our understanding is, and based on our research, we do know that um, it is taking place. So there are certain OEMs that have said, well, you know, I, I don't want to be exposed overly to the risk of one particular metal. And um, they are using what we call a trimetal catalyst that has more platinum on it than it had before. So within the gasoline um, engine. So during the, the, the previous decade, we did see a lot of shift away from platinum to palladium, even in diesel catalysis. And that is an easy switch back because diesel, you know, just in terms of how the engine is structured and that it has a cold start and platinum being more affected at, at, at colder temperatures compared to palladium that needs the engine to be at a higher temperature to be as effective. You have that, it's, an, it, it's a natural switch. So how much of, you know, the, the reversal back, because there is still uh, a lot of um, diesel cars out there, yes, you know, European market is reducing quite substantially. And we've seen that, you know, the diesel share um, in the passenger segment has dropped to below 20% in recent years, down from about 56% in 2020, 2010, there or thereabouts. But as far as palladium is concerned, you know, we are, so in the gasoline or um, vehicle, we are seeing an increasing amount of platinum being used in uh, the gasoline engine, the detail, you know, it varies. So in our um, estimation, we believe that in 2022, about 400,000 ounces worth of palladium will be 
where we replaced with platinum. And that could, could increase, but there's an inflection point there as well, I would say. So we would certainly see that there's a, an increase out to 2025, where it, it potentially could plateau because we will see that palladium and or we're expecting the palladium and the platinum prices to converge. Yeah, no, that's, that's very good. We might just launch straight into uh, some of the questions and, and things I would love to ask and, and get into. My perspective, like I sort of hinted at earlier on in the conversation, is that I spend a lot of time looking at the big picture of things, how everything fits together, looking at the world as an interrelated sort of complex system. At the same time, I spend a lot of time trying to understand the behavior of different participant groups within that system, right? Because different groups of people or organizations have different proximity to information. On the one hand, they have different incentive structures, they have different levels of sophistication and experience. And it's kind of a philosophy of, you know, I'm not too interested in listening to what you say. I want to see what you're actually doing. Um, so what actions are you taking? You know, where are you putting your money and why? Uh, where's the money moving? How's the money moving around the world, et cetera, et cetera. And when we do that, especially because different participant groups have different behavioral relationships to a, a normal cycle or an economic cycle or a market cycle, depending what we're looking at. And by watching what different participant groups are doing, we can, in aggregate, we can start to reverse engineer where we might be in that cycle for that metal or that currency or that commodity, et cetera, et cetera. One of the reasons why I was really interested in talking about platinum in particular is when I sit back and look at this constellation of aggregated participant group behavior, I'm seeing a setup that is very similar to the 1990s, right, in platinum. And what I mean by that, like currently for the last six years in particular, we've had like by our measures underlying liquidity in and around platinum related markets, whether it's futures or the different areas that it's traded has been very poor, very lacking. It's very much been quite devastated. Almost zero, next to no speculative interest, right? For the better part of the last six years, especially when we look at the different sort of participant groups and flows underneath the futures markets. But where it gets interesting is when I look at the behavior of patient capital or patient type participant groups. So just to backtrack really quickly, we tend to categorize uh, participant groups by proximity to information, experience, sophistication, but also motive, right? And so that enables us to aggregate lots of different entities and people. And so when I talk about patient capital, they usually have usually good uh, proximity to information at a fundamental level in any given whatever the market is that we're talking about. They have multi-year, long-term sort of cyclical time horizons. They tend to have a bit of a concept of fair value to some degree. So if price gets too low, that will incentivize them to accumulate at the margin. Or if price is too high, they're distributing at the margin. And so the thing that interests me the most is that I'm seeing basically almost like a rerun of the 1990s, right? Where a lot of this patient money crowd, their aggregate behavior has been very substantial accumulation 
over the last six years in particular. And the last time we saw that was in uh, particularly the late 1990s, right? And we had similar conditions where it was just zero speculative interest. Uh, underlying liquidity was very lethargic. Um, and another way of thinking about underlying liquidity or market book depth underlying any given market, it's almost like if we've got the globalized system as a complex system, what interest does that broader system have in this particular market, right? If there's greater interest in this market, there'll be generally greater levels of liquidity, you know, order book depth and interest basically underneath that particular market. And so underlying liquidity tends to be a bit of a leading or coincident type indicator. And so when you line it up with price, uh, a very healthy market is a very liquid market, right? It has huge order book depth, lots of interest from that broader system. And this is very separate to some of the participant group behaviors that we're talking about as well. And so recently, and especially even in the last six months, underlying liquidity has just been falling away, right? There's almost no interest. The bounce that we've had in platinum prices in over the last six to nine months, incredibly weak, very lethargic. And in fact, when we start to look at our credit risk models for that broader sector and a lot of the you know, related equities that sort of have like mining and, and different sort of exposures to this sector, they've actually been pretty healthy in terms of their fundamental condition and a lack of credit risk priced into their operations. And so that's a pretty good sort of fundamental picture, at least on a subcycle two to four year basis. Um, over the last two years in particular. But that's shifting now to going from complacency in terms of credit risk, shifting in the direction of escalating credit risk, um, starting to be priced into those companies. So it's a deteriorating at the margin fundamental condition in those companies and, and things. And so my suspicion is because a lot of our leading indicators of economic growth and demand in the world at the bigger picture level is for the path of least resistance, at least for the rest of this year, to be towards disappointment. So declining and decelerating demand and economic growth conditions in the world more generally. And that would tend to match the very lethargic liquidity um, conditions that are unfolding. But what I'm seeing, and this patient money crowd for the last six years have been accumulating very strongly every time the price of platinum, so using the futures markets in the States, as a point of reference, every time it heads towards 800, we see massive accumulation. And we're kind of already inching in that direction already, right? So I'm, my suspicion is, is we're towards the end of a bottoming process, six years in the making in platinum, very similar to the late 1990s, amazingly similar, similar. And I was very fascinated at your observation or your point around the palladium platinum substitution because it all shifted in that, obviously, the early 2000s, where we seem to be building towards a similar uh, setup there, you know, because we also, simultaneous to this, there's weakness coming in underneath the palladium markets, right? They've been distributed and the underlying liquidity and broader interest of the broader system has just been very lethargic. It's a very weak picture there. Um, it's, it's more of a picture of a topping process more than anything, whereas platinum is the exact opposite. And so then when I sit back, and, and especially just further com confirmed by a lot of what you've been describing, Wilma, you know, we've got basically security of supply, potential issues continuing to build in the background around platinum, 
we have, uh, you know, both in South Africa, but obviously also the Russia connection as well. But we have more broadly on a multi-decade basis, a lot of our leading indicators of sovereign credit risk in the world uh, have been increasing, which generally means there's an increased demand for collateral. And so at the margin, what that tells me is the next seven years, it's likely to be an outsized marginal demand from jewellery and investment demand uh, for platinum, especially when you marry that with uh, security of supply issues because of geopolitical or jurisdictional risk concerns building. Obviously, we have this, we're potentially getting to a point just like the early 2000s because the setup is so similar um, to the late 90s where we could at the margin have a meaningful shift towards some substitution from palladium to platinum, just like you guys just discussed uh, a little earlier. The other suspicion I have, and Wilma, you can probably speak to this, when it comes to platinum, so what, what we've just seen over the last 10 to 15 years in particular in energy, right, is we've seen the ESG craze um, really get fashionable and hyper-fashionable in the political world and in the investment world and et cetera, et cetera. We've also seen in the energy space, you know, for a variety of different reasons, a complete washout in CapEx and new discoveries even in the energy space and all of this sort of stuff. So it's a a very capital scarce condition in energy. Now, my suspicion is, and just looking around at the way, you know, flows and different behavior uh, or participant behavior groups have been behaving around platinum. My suspicion is, is that there's been a similar dynamic where the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater around the ESG concerns, um, security of supply issues with the, you know, South Africa often popping into the headlines over the last seven to 10 years. This all sort of coalesces into this setup from a forward looking uh, investment point of view over the next 10 years of potentially Obviously, it won't be the same as the early 2000s, but similar, you know, because of supply restriction. And so, proximately speaking, um, looking through all of these different factors, it kind of superficially makes sense to me that we would get this, you know, substantial patient money crowd accumulation over the last six years in this space, because the next seven years could be amazingly attractive and appreciatory for platinum prices. And my suspicion is, is that over the balance of this year, just given the constellation and the weak construct in flows and liquidity and, and different things and, and also yeah, broader things, my suspicion is, is we have another accumulation opportunity in platinum and platinum related investment themes, et cetera. So we sort of get a little bit more weakness before we start to step into all of these dynamics flipping on its head to potentially a very strong next seven years for all of these different reasons that I think starting to coalesce in these directions. Now, I've probably talked way too long. What, what are your first impressions, actually both of you, when I make these observations, especially the, the analogy to the, the 1990s and the late 1990s in particular? think cyclicality we we know that you know i mean i think that that's really um true that these commodities operate in cycles and you are seeing i mean you're seeing very similar uh, aspects 
to the 1990s. So it, it does make a, a lot of sense for me that, you know, platinum is shifting into that potentially more optimistically investment phase as opposed to palladium where you potentially are seeing that, you know, just given battery electrification, um, the potential for substitution and the hydrogen economy, which it doesn't have a play in um, at this moment in time, you know, are certainly seeing that there's that, that shift between the two, the palladium. So what you're seeing in the investment markets in terms of the depth um, of, of the order books, etc., certainly I think that that is very true. Vilma, very quickly. The, maybe our audience thinks that we are whistling past the graveyard with platinum because three-fifths of demand goes towards auto catalysts, which are unnecessary in electric vehicles, which is the whole environment social governance movement that Daniel mentioned. But I don't believe that we are getting rid of all those ICE engines, internal combustion engines. Is that correct? What do the projections that you see at Metals Focus, is it that we're substituting all the vehicles by 2030 or it's more of a 2050 story or there's still going to be a, plenty of demand? Can, tell us a little bit about what the pace is and whether or not there's some sort of serious demand destruction that's taking place or is that more of a, a smoke and not a lot of fire behind that? Yeah. I think I think we shouldn't dismiss the fact that there is uh, there is a demand destruction in or in platinum from the auto sector side. I think what we've got to acknowledge as well is that there will be some um, replacements, so there will be uh, growth in new applications, and that it still re remains within the transport sector, but it would be associated with the hydrogen economy. Um, so just maybe taking a step back and looking at where we're seeing the powertrain go. So essentially, for for most of the the previous uh, century, we saw this massive growth in, uh, growth in the internal combustion engine. And the question is, is the internal combustion engine the the horse of um, the turn of the previous century. Uh, and, and I think not immediately, no. I, I think this is also important for the, uh, for, for, for the audience to understand that, you know, when you talk about a, a battery electric vehicle, there will be different forms of battery electric vehicles. And for the next decade, we're going to see a lot of hybridization. And that hybridization includes an internal combustion engine, a smaller engine. But in terms of Platinum consumption is actually neutral to positive because you actually need cold start circumstances, etc. So you actually need more PGMs, platinum blue metals, on the the catalyst system in a hybrid vehicle. And so if we just look at the the the, the share, and and this is what the headlines would say, you know, battery electrification will make up fifty percent by twenty thirty and a hundred percent by twenty fifty. And if you unpack that true battery vehicles that have no internal combustion engine will make about, I would say, I mean, based on our estimations, around about 20, 25% by the end of the decade, potentially more. And, and there are certain constraints associated with that. The, the, the expansion of the grid, the capability, um, you know, just the access to, to base metals, the, 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 the nickel, the class one nickel, the, um, lithium, you know, those 
and I and I'm not an expert there, Emil. So so certainly we know that there will be some constraints. But I think it's quite important to understand that for at least the next 20 years, the internal combustion engine, maybe not in pure internal combustion engine shape and form, will be um, part of the powertrain that drives people in their cars, but, you know, it will be a substantial percentage. And out to this end of this decade, we're forecasting that internal combustion engines will still make up about 80% of vehicle production. It just sounds the parallel to, you know, everyone, say, trying to move away from fossil fuels, you know, all of their noble intentions and all the rest of it into renewables, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds fantastic, but there's this over the next seven years, especially because of this CapEx issue and all the rest of it, we're staring down the barrel of a bit of a timing sequencing issue <laughs> in terms of all of, you know, trying to head in all of these different directions because we still are just hyper-dependent on all of these other modes of energy production. And so my suspicion is, and it's sort of clearly I'm going to have to look into all of this a lot more because it, it seems like quite an opportunity here, broadly speaking. But my suspicion is, is a similar dynamic has happened with platinum where we are likely to see increased demand from a variety of different sources over the next five years, partially from, you know, everyone getting ahead of themselves, even on the ESG related aspects as, as well. Anyway, I'm thinking out loud here. I find this fascinating, especially because it's um, adding a lot of detail to what I, I think I am perceiving around this market. Vilma, Daniel, we were just talking about capital expenditure. Earlier, Daniel mentioned the number 800 in US dollars as a point of accumulation. Daniel, let me know if I've got that right. By the patient money crowd, patient investors, long-term investors. Does that number ring a bell in any sort of way in the fundamental space? Does this have anything to do with all-in sustaining costs? How much does it, you know, is it, does that number 800 show up anywhere on your fundamental radar screen for, I'm guessing, supply? Well, it's actually eight, 750 to 800 um, is where it's been accumulated repeatedly. And that seems to be a pretty critical point. So if we go below there, then we're in crash mode, basically. Uh, if we go below 750, then we've got a lot of participants that are trapped and they will need to reverse and, and get out. But yeah, I, that is not my primary view. I, I kind of think even if we do go below, it will bounce straight back up just like we did in 2020 um, because it will just be accumulated hand over fist. And the fundamentals are pretty good from what I can tell, even at and around those those prices, quite frankly, which is actually similar to the 90s where a lot of these mining related companies and equities had pretty healthy fundamentals, even at prices around 400-ish for the better part of the 90s, you know, and, and we have a fairly similar picture there as well, uh, even though over the next 12 months, they're probably going to deteriorate, but Overall, it's pretty good. So last year, um, well, so 2020, the all-in sustaining cost of production um, was around $496. And this year, uh, most probably will be in the, well, 2021 will be similar levels. 2022, I think we need to expect some inflationary costs. I, I think that there have been a couple of challenges you know, firstly, because of the basket price where it is, you are going to see higher wage um, costs, you know, just the escalation in utilities costs, um, the cost, you know, there was a supply chain squeeze in terms of equipment, just reagents in the entire mining process. So mining inflation, I'm expecting to be um, 
a, a bit higher. I think we can expect a, a higher sustaining cost. But in reality, given where the palladium price is and given where the rhodium price is, as I was saying earlier, you know, platinum from a revenue basis in, in the second half of 2021 only made contributed 19% to revenue. The big hitters was rhodium and palladium. Now, if you if you see that come off, that will be a risk. But at the moment, production they're all in the money. You know, that means that production will continue. The moment you see that the prices come off, if the palladium price comes off quite a bit, if that basket price that they can earn falls below a certain level, then you are going to see more caution around mine expansions, around, uh, you, know, you know, just simply both greenfield and, and brownfield expansion. And that could mean that you're seeing a lower mine supply. Daniel, I wonder if, you had access, I'm sure you don't have it handy right now, but I wonder if there was some sort of look you could see into the palladium market, the rhodium market, and then I don't know how you would do it, but uh, some sort of weighted basket of those three to give you a price point as to whether that would explain the 750 to 800 importance in palladium. I'm talking out loud as well. I have no idea. Yeah, the 750 to 800 is more from a, um investment point of view now everything actually everything you just explained there makes a lot of sense and even if the cost the all-in costs of you know the platinum like i have no idea the volatility of that like i uh, but even if it went to say 500 or even a bit north of that that's still fine and that's fairly consistent and and this is what i was kind of saying about the credit risk model being reasonably healthy and if they've got, you know, if we're at current prices and even if we go down to 750, 700, whatever, you know, we will see further, you know, credit risk being starting to come into those securities or, or those related to those uh, acti- or operations and companies. But it's not really that big a deal. Um, and if we can even tolerate some inflation or cost inflation to, you know, 500 or a bit north of 500, then there's plenty of buffer there. Uh, and that would also still be very consistent with why it's being accumulated massively. Um, in terms of, I have palladium sitting here in front of me as well. The underlying liquidity on every one of these spikes that we've seen over the last three years in palladium have been deteriorating each time. And currently, even though we've got recent new uh, price highs in palladium, underlying liquidity has has been much lower and it's falling away pretty fast actually even the speculative money crowd have started to you know become lethargic as well but over the last couple of spikes over the last three years it's been distributed pretty heavily by patient money there's more credit risk being priced into palladium related operations than platinum Right. So for whatever reason, right now, it appears like there's better margins in platinum than there is even in palladium. I don't understand this. I don't know whether that is accurate or not. Um, but there's a bit more credit risk coming into palladium now than, you know, from fairly healthy conditions than there was platinum. Like overall, I expect the relative ratio of price of palladium versus platinum. So palladium will underperform and platinum will outperform probably over the next three to four years is what this setup looks like. And it's pretty concerning that underlying liquidity and broader interest in um, palladium is, is so poor. We have a point of control from the real money crowd at about 1700 on palladium. 
yeah, if that gives way, then there's potentially quite a big unwind there because that roughly bullish crowd have been in control literally for the last 11, 10 years, right? And so that's a huge dam buildup of potential energy. So if 1700 were to give way in earnest in price, then we have a lot of trapped participants and a, quite a substantial unwind there. And that's, that's risk of like crash mode if we were to get there. Uh, now, whether that's a temporary down and then resilient bounce back or not, like I don't know. I, I don't understand that market well enough, but that's the way it's sort of setting up at the moment. When it comes to rhodium, I'm, I've never actually dropped that market and built out analysis tools for it. I'm kind of intrigued, and so I probably will end up doing that. And then once I've done that, it'll be easy to create this basket that you refer to. But yeah, the, um, the relative investment prospect of platinum are pretty clear. Vilma, I'm, yeah, I'm mindful of your time, Vilma. Do you have any thoughts regarding the relationship, the relative relationship between palladium and platinum and what Daniel just said? No, I think, I, think, I think very, very profound observations and quite in fact true. You know, I mean, I think that that is, is certainly um, what we are seeing just, uh, we're seeing a response in a way by investors on the long-term prospects here, we are seeing palladium moving into a, a surplus um, going forward um, towards the, the latter part of this decade. And we've seen platinum moving into a deficit after, uh, you know, almost a decade of, of surplus in the in platinum and a decade of, of deficit in palladium, though the fundamentals are switching. And, and I think that what, uh, what Daniel is seeing in, in terms of the investment behavior is that, that the investors are taking note of that and the prospects of, of the two. And that's the response we're seeing. Fascinating. Do you have a estimate of all in cost of production for um, palladium at all? Don't, don't have it at hand, Daniel. It's fascinating that what Daniel sees in capital flows, because Daniel doesn't know anything about platinum. No offense, Daniel matches what the fundamentals are from you, Vilma. Fascinating. I can't believe it. I didn't know if that was actually how it was going to work out, but I guess that's what we're seeing. Vilma, I had a fantastic time. I'm sure Daniel did too. I hope you have. Can you tell us a little bit about Metals Focus in case people want to reach out to you to learn more about Platinum or Metals Focus in general to learn about gold, silver, any other work that you do? Absolutely. Um, so uh, I think Metals Focus um, started in 2013 and we provide data to the World Gold Council. Uh, we provide the data to the Silver Institute and we also provide data to the World Platinum Investment Council. So we are a pre precious metals house. And, uh, you know, we produce a weekly report that anybody can subscribe to where we cover what is topical, what is interesting in terms of platinum, palladium, rhodium, gold and silver. And then we produce our flagship reports. Uh, we produce a gold, a very comprehensive gold, silver and platinum group metals focus report. The PGM one, the platinum group metals one, we're launching in person on the 16th of May here in London. 
so hopefully we'll we'll get back to a, a world of normal and a normalized world where we are able to have our, our in-person launch and then we also do bespoke um, assessments where do we, we supply our clients with a forecast a five-year forecast and 10-year forecast or we would do particular research on a particular topic we also produce a hydrogen economy report where we look at the demand for all the metals so we didn't talk about ruthenium and iridium but those are all key metals that's also of interest in the in the hydrogen economy so we unpack the potential for the hydrogen economy what is driving it what is the potential for platinum blue metals in that segment well let me add my recommendation for the audience that's interested i've seen these reports and they're fantastic i think they're very good high quality and those books that you produce each year outstanding outstanding daniel any final thoughts no i think this has been great wilma is very good at what she does i can tell um and yeah this is this is an area that i'd love to actually spend a lot more time in because i think the opportunity is there the setup seems to be there fascinating stuff well thank you again wilma thank you 